renegade. Here's how it goes. An account may be given of the fate of Simon, the son of Saul, a man well known. His bodily strength and personal courage were, courage were exceptional, but to the injury of his countrymen he abused both gifts. He went out day by day and killed many Jews who were attacking Scythopolis. Frequently he had routed their whole force and turned the balance of the fighting. When he was overtaken by the punishment, he had deserved for slaughtering his own kin. For when the men of Scythopolis had surrounded the grove and were shooting down its occupants with their javelins, he drew his sword but made no move toward the enemy as, as he saw their overwhelming numbers. Instead, he exclaimed in a deep tone of emotion, Justly I am punished for my crimes, men of Scythopolis, I and the rest, who by murdering so many of our relatives have established our loyalty to you. Later on, this Simon goes to say, This God grant shall be at once the fit punishment for my foul crimes and the proof of my courage, so that none of my foes shall be able to boast of having slain me or gloat over my body. With these words, he glanced around with a look of mingled pity and rage at his own family. He had a wife, children, and aged parents. First, seizing his father by his gray hairs, he transfixed him with his sword. Next, killed his mother, who offered no resistance. Finally, his wife and children, each of them almost rushing upon the blade in haste to anticipate the enemy. Please turn the tape over to side two at this time. Thank you. These kind of things occurred throughout not only Israel, but even within the Roman Empire. We return now to uh, Egypt in Alexandria, and we find this account. But now the disorder had broken out elsewhere as well. The riots at Alexandria became even more violent. On one occasion, when the citizens of Alexandria were holding a public meeting concerning an embassy, that they proposed to Nehru, great numbers of Jews poured into the amphitheater along with the Greeks. As soon as their opponents caught sight of them, they yelled, Enemy, spies, and sprang to their feet and lay hands on them. Most of the Jews took flight and dispersed, but they caught three men and dragged them off to be burned alive. At that point, the whole Jewish community rose to their defense. First they pelted the Greeks with stones. Then they snatched up torches and rushed to the amphitheater, threatening to burn to death the assembled citizens to the last man. And they would actually have done this had not Tiberius Alexander, the governor of the city, tempered their rage. In his first attempt to call them to reason, he employed no force, quietly sending respected citizens among them, urging them to desist and not to provoke the Romans to attack them. But the rioters threatened this appeal with contempt and heaped abuse upon Tiberius. When he realized that nothing less than a major calamity would quell the rebels, he let loose among them the two Roman legions stationed in the city, together with 2,000 soldiers who happened to have come from Libya to complete the ruin of the Jews. He gave them leave not merely to kill them, but to plunder their property and burn down their houses. The soldiers thereupon rushed into the quarter of the city called Delta, where the Jews were concentrated and carried out their orders but not without bloodshed on their own side. For the Jews closed their ranks, put the best armed men among their numbers in front, and held their ground for a very long time. But when once they gave way, wholesale carnage ensued. Death came upon them in every form. Some were taken in the open, 
others driven into their houses to which the Romans set fire after looting their contents. They felt no pity for infants, no respect for years. All ages fell right and left until the whole district was deluged with blood and 50,000 corpses were heaped up, nor would the remnant have survived had they not begged for mercy. Alexander, now moved by compassion, ordered the Romans to withdraw. They, with their habitual obedience, ceased massacring at the first signal. But the populace of Alexandria, through the intensity of their hate, were disinclined to obey and could hardly be dragged away from the corpses. Now in Book 2, Chapter 19, Section number 6 and 7 here, uh, starting around there, is a unique account. The uh, A man named Cestius, the head of the Roman army in around 66 AD, attacked Jerusalem and got to the place where basically he was about to come in and destroy it at any moment. The way it uh, reads here, it says in, in section number 7 here, at any rate, Cestius, aware neither of the despair of the besieged nor the temper of the people, suddenly recalled his troops. I mean, he was right at the door um, and ready to, you know, to destroy uh, Israel. He had Jerusalem. He had it right in his hands. And all of a sudden, here, with this surprising change, he reverses, not unexpectedly retreats from the city. With this surprising change, the insurgents plucked up courage, dashed out to attack his rear guard and killed a considerable number of cavalry and infantry. Cestius spent the night in his camp on the Scopus Hill. He continued to retreat on the following day, inviting further opposition from the enemy. Dogging his heels, they attacked the rear and surrounding the troops on both sides, they hurled their spears on the flanks of the column. The rear ranks dared not turn and face those who were striking them from behind because they thought an enormous army was pursuing them. The rest did not venture to beat off those who were pressing their flanks, since they were heavily armed and were afraid to open up their ranks while they saw that the Jews were lightly armed and prepared to dash in among them. Consequently, they suffered heavily without any retaliation upon their foes. Throughout the march, men were continually being struck, torn from the ranks, and dropped to the ground. At last, after many casualties, including Priscus, the commander of the 6th Legion, Lagenus, a tri tribune, and Amelius Jacundus, the commander of the troops of the horses, managed with difficulty to reach their camp at Gibeon, having for further abandoned the greater part of their baggage. Cestius halted there for two days at a loss what to do, but on the third, seeing the number of the enemy greatly swell and all the surrounding country swarming with Jews, he decided that the delay had been detrimental and that if he remained any longer, he would have more enemies still. So he uh, comes up with a little scheme and finally uh, they, they get out of there and the Jews just think that God just kicked their butt and they returned um, and, and made all kind of preparations to uh, rejoice and be a new kingdom again. But lo and behold, remember what Jesus said? When you see Jerusalem surrounded, then flee to the mountains. Well, here was a situation. You have to understand that the city at this point was filled with Jews 
that believed in the Messiah, Jesus. And they heeded the warnings of the apostles. And they heeded the warnings of Jesus. And at this point, according to history, uh, many of the Messianic Jews, the Jews that believed in Jesus, left the city and went to Syria. Uh, some give an account that uh, most of them went to a city called Pella, P-E-L-L-A. But anyway, it's just interesting that here an, a Roman had the city in his hands. And somehow, mysteriously, for, for, for no reason that we know of, uh, except for the fact that may, he may have been recalled back to, uh, to become the emperor. I'm not sure if, if that account uh, uh, fits in here or not. But in any event, he, he leaves with victory you know, right in his hands, only for another general to return to end up destroying it in the fullness of time. In book number six, uh, chapter two, verse uh, section one, I'd like to read a section you know, to just show you the depravity of the people of Israel a little bit. We're going to talk some more about it uh, later on, but uh, this is just incredible. Titus ordered the soldiers with him to raise the foundations of the Antonia and make the ascent easy for the whole army. Then he informed that on the day, the 17th day of Panemus, because of a lack of men, the perpetual offering to God had been discontinued and that the people were consequently in the depths of despair. He then ordered Josephus to repeat to John. John was one of the leaders of one of the rebels within uh, the city, you know, at, at, at the time that, would, that it was actually uh, being uh, um, destroyed for real, uh, Josephus, remember, he's now on the side of the Romans. He is interpreting and speaking to one of the leaders of the rebels inside of Jerusalem, and he says this, If you have a malicious inclination to wage war, you are free to come out with as many men as you wish to fight without bringing destruction on the city and sanctuary, as well as on yourselves. But you must stop polluting the holy place and sinning against God. Moreover, you are free to appoint any Jews you like to offer the discontinued sacrifices. Remember, they they stopped offering sacrifices for the uh, Gentiles. Josephus pointed himself where he could be heard not only by John, but by the multitude, and delivered Caesar's address in Hebrew, appealing to them earnestly to, quote, spare the country, to beat out the flames that were already licking at the sanctuary, and to restore to God the expiatory sacrifices. The people listened to him in silence and utter dejection, but the tyrant poured abuse and imprecations on the head of Josephus, finally stating that, quote, he would never be afraid of capture since the city was God's, end quote. Josephus loudly retorted, certainly you have kept it pure for God, and the holy place, too, remains unpolluted. You have never, you have never dishonored your hoped-for hope ally, and he receives the customary sacrifices. He be, he's being sarcastic here. You godless creature, if anyone deprive you of your daily food, you would, you would regard him as your enemy, and do you believe you can count on God, whom you have denied his everlasting worship, to be your ally in this war? And you blame your sins on the Romans, who respect our laws and who are pressing you to restore to God these sacrifices, which you have interrupted? 
Who would not cry and wail for the city at the amazing change when aliens and enemies atone for your impiety while you, a Jew, cradled in her laws, are a greater enemy to them than, to, than, than the others? Yet consider, John, it is no disgrace to mend your evil ways, even at the last moment. And if you really wish to save your country, you have a splendid example before you in Jeconiah, the king of the Jews, who, when the king of Babylon made war on him through his conduct, left the city on his own accord before it was taken, and submitted with his family to voluntary captivity, rather than surrender the holy places and see the house of God go up in flames. For that he is celebrated in the Holy Scriptures by all Jews, and memory flowing down the ages and eternally new immortalized him to future generations. This, John, is a noble example, even if it is dangerous. But I can guarantee you even a party pardon from the Romans. And remember, too, that I who exhorted you am a fellow countryman and advise you as a Jew. It is sensible to consider who is counseling you and where he comes from. Never while I live shall I become such an abject slave as to deny my race and forget my heritage. Once more you shout your indignation at me with your loudmouthed abuse. Indeed, I deserve even harsher treatment for offering advice against fate's decision and struggling to save men condemned by God. I quoted uh, many scriptures earlier of Jesus warning through many different ways that there would be signs uh, of, the, of this thing that was going to happen. When the heavens and the earth were going to pass away, there would be many signs, omens throughout the land. Uh, Josephus, in uh, book number two, verse, uh, or, uh, let's see, chapter 22, the um, first section, says this, There were omens, too, which to the peace lovers abode ill, but those who lit the fires of war invented favorable interpretations for them at will. So here, here he says there were all kind of omens throughout the land, that those who wanted peace saw them as, as ill warnings that there was you know, trouble ahead. But those who wanted to war, those who wanted hate, they interpret, interpreted those omens as, as good for them. In other words, the people were calling evil good and good evil. Now, people, as we go through more of these detailed accounts of the things that the apostles warned about, that Jesus warned about, that the prophets in the Old Testament warned about, that were being fulfilled in this very account here. Please think of all the books that you have read and all the end time things about the beast and the credit card and the computer system and all these things that, are, that you have probably swallowed in bucketfuls. And I ask you to spew and spit all that nonsense out. And then take a look at those scriptures with these accounts here in mind. So that your mind can become clean and clear to be able to think of the days ahead. From God's point of view and not from this nonsense that, uh, that has been spewed out by the tens of thousands of books and sermons and TV programs on the... On the uh, Things that are that are right on the horizon. Okay, in book number six of the War of the Jews, uh, section chapter five, section two, we have another account that uh, about the false prophets and omens and things like that. 
The Romans, deeming it useless to spare the surrounding buildings, now that the temple was in flames, set fire to them all, both of whom, both of what remained of the porticos and all the gates except two, one of the east gates and the south gate, both of which were later demolished. They burned also the treasury chambers, which contained huge sums of money, vast quantities of raiment, and other precious belongings, here, in fact, was the general depository of Jewish wealth, where the rich had brought the contentments of their dismantled homes for safekeeping. The temple became the bank. You talk about mixing money and religion. Okay, they now reached the last surrounding porticos, portico of the outer court, on top of which poor women and children of the populace and a mixed multitude numbering 6,000 had found refuge. Before Caesar could reach any decision or give any orders to his officers as regards these people, the soldiers, carried away by their fury, set fire to the porticos from below. Consequently, many were killed as they threw themselves out of the flames, while others were consumed by the blaze. Of all the multitude, not a soul escaped. The people owed their destruction to a false prophet who had on that very day declared to the people of the city that God ordered them to go up to the temple courts to receive there the signs of their deliverance. Many prophets had been induced in these days by the rebel leaders to deceive the people by exhorting them to wait for help from God and thereby to reduce the flow of deserters, as well as buoy up, buoy, as well as buoy up with hope those who were beyond fear or precaution. Man is quickly persuaded in adversity, and when the deceiver actually holds out a prospect of release from the prevailing horrors, the sufferer falls wholly prey to these expectations. I believe these are words of warning to you today and to me today. What happened, how easily we were seduced by false prophets in moments of uh, where our life was on the line. These false prophets told the people to come to the house of God, to come to the church, if you will, and there in the church, there in the house of God was the very place that was full of false prophets, full of, full of uh, false rebel leaders, and there was no deliverance there. Here is the rapture of 70 AD. These people seduced by false prophets were, went to the house of God and went up in flames. Rapture? I guess if ashes going up into the first heavens is being caught up in the air, I suppose you could call this a rapture. But I don't believe that that is the fate that most of you who are looking to escape the destruction, if there is a destruction on the horizon, I don't believe that this is the method that you would like to escape the destruction with. So I encourage you, please, 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 hear this tape series again and again and again until you are washed clean 
of the nonsense and the stupidity that has been preached in the name of Jesus Christ. Get rid of those thoughts that you might be able to truly hear God when in, when if there is a, a a great tribulation of some sort on the horizon. I tell you this, the stuff that you're reading in your Christian bookstore, those prophets are indeed false prophets, and they will seduce and deceive you if, 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 in fact, you swallow their pill. He goes on to say, This is how the unhappy people were beguiled at this stage by charlatans and false messengers of God. While they disagreed and disbelieved, the unmistakable portent portents that foreshadowed the coming of desolation, and as though thunderstruck, blind, senseless, paid no heed to the clear warnings of God. It was like this when a star that looked like a sword stood over the city, and a comet that continued for a whole year. Then again, before the war and the events that led to it, while the people were assembled for the Feast of Unleavened Bread, on the eighth day of the month, Anxicath, Anxicath, Anxicus, I'm sorry, this is a hard word, X-A-N-T-H-I-C-U-S. At the ninth hour of the night, so bright a light shone around the altar and temple that it looked like a broad, like broad daylight, and this lasted for half an hour. The inexperienced regarded it as a good omen, but it was immediately interpreted by the sacred scribes in conforming with subsequent events. During the same feast, a cow, now this is hard to believe, and, and some historians believe that this was uh, actually really not in the original. Um, I'll leave it up to you. Uh, Josephus clearly was tampered with, with uh, later church uh, people. Um, they added some things that really weren't there, so if this is one of them, I'll, I'll leave it up to you to decide. But Josephus, uh, this account here says, During the same feast, a cow brought by someone for a sacrifice gave birth to a lamb right in the midst of the temple courts. Furthermore, the east gate of the inner sanctuary was a very massive gate made of brass and so heavy that it could scarcely be moved every evening by 20 men. It was fastened by iron-bound bars and secured by bolts that were sunk very deep into a threshold that was fashioned from a single stone block. Yet this gate was seen to open on its own accord at the sixth hour of the night. The temple guards ran and reported the news to the captain, and he came up and by strenuous efforts managed to close it. To the uninitiated, this also appeared to be the best of omens, as they assumed that God had opened, them, opened to them the gate of happiness. But wiser people realized that the security of the temple was breaking down of its own accord, and that the opening of the gate was a present was a present to the enemy, and they interpreted this in their own minds as a portent of coming desolation. Then again, not many days after the feast, on the 21st of the month of Artemisium, a supernatural apparition was seen, too amazing to be believed. What I am now to relate would I imagine have been dismissed as imaginary had this not been vouched for by eyewitnesses, then followed by subsequent disasters that deserve to be thus signalized. For before sunset, chariots were seen in the air over the whole country, and armed battalions speeding through the clouds and encircling the city. 
Then again, at the feast called Pentecost, while the priests had entered the inner courts of the temple by night to perform their usual ministrations, they declared that they were aware first of a violent commotion and din, then of a voice of a host crying, We are departing hence. In section 4, Josephus says, uh, Anyone who ponders these things will find that God does care for people and by all sorts of ways shows his people the means of salvation, while it is to folly and evils of their own choosing that they own their destruction. Thus the Jews, after the demolition of Antonia, reduced the temple area to a tetragram, though their oracles warned them that when the temple would become four square, the city and the temple would fall. But what incited them more than anything else to the war was an equivocal oracle also found in their sacred scriptures announcing that at the time a man from their country would become ruler of the world. This he, they took to mean someone of their own race, and many of their own scholars misinterpreted it when in fact the oracle pointed to the ascension of Vespasian, who was proclaimed emperor. For all that, it is impossible for people to escape their fate, even if they see it coming. The Jews interpreted some of these prophecies to suit themselves and treated the others with contempt, till the fall of their country and their own destruction proved their folly. While this uh, tape series wants to be as in-depth as possible, I'm not going to get into uh, too much in the book of Revelation. There's some people who actually believe that the entire book of Revelation was fulfilled at that period of time, um, and that all the symbols and everything in the book of Revelation have to deal primarily with the, the destruction of Jerusalem. I don't want to get into that subject here because it would be literally a mini-tape series. But I do want to point out a couple of different things that Josephus points out that would give you maybe um, uh, enough interest to re-look at the book of Revelation from a different point of view. One of the things that Josephus does use, uh, he uses a term beast in kind of an unusual way. And the book of Revelation has a lot to say about the beast. So I'll read a couple of these portions that he had to say about the beast so that maybe it might get your mind stirring. In book number five, uh, chapter one, section one, he says, Titus having in the way we described above crossed the desert from Egypt to Syria, arrived at Caesarea where he had decided to marshal his forces before the campaign. But while he was at Alexandria, assisting his father to establish the sovereignty newly entrusted to them by God, the civil strife in Jerusalem had reached a fresh climax and became the three-cornered fight, as one of the parties had turned its arms against itself. A discord which, as among criminals, might be called good and the work of justice. The zealots attacked on the people. The first step toward the city's destructions had been accurately described already, including its origin and disastrous progress. It would be not wrong to describe this as a faction within a faction, like a raving beast driven by lack of food at last to devour its own flesh going to read this section to just give you an idea of how much of the destruction of, uh, of Israel really was caused by Israel's own people. That uh, much of the, uh, the destruction that the Romans uh, brought about came as a result of trying to quell the original disturbance of Israel 
fighting Israel. In uh, book number four, chapter seven, uh, section two, we read about the Sikari and a couple of other groups. Remember, there were three main factions in Judaism that ended up fighting one another. Kind of like denomination, killing denomination, you know what I mean? But now a fourth calamity was threatening the doomed nation. Not far from Jerusalem was a formidable fortress built by the kings in past ages as a repository for their treasures and a refuge for themselves in the hazards of war. It was called Masada, and it was in the hands of the so-called Sikari. Up until now, they had confined themselves to raids in the neighboring districts with the mere object of procuring supplies, fear preventing them any further ravages. But now, when they heard that the Roman army was inactive while the Jews in Jerusalem were torn by sedition and domestic tyranny, they launched out in more ambitious schemes. During the Feast of Unleavened Bread, a feast observed by the Jews in memory of their deliverance ever since they were freed from bondage in Egypt and returned to their native land, these assassins, looting under cover of night those who might have obstructed them, made a night raid on a little town named Engedi. Those who were capable of resistance were dispersed before they could seize arms and assemble and were driven out of the town. Those who could not flee, women and children, numbering more than 700, were massacred. Now this is uh, Jews massacring other Jews. Then they rifled the houses, seized the ripest crops, and carried off the, the loot to Masada. They made similar raids on all the villages around the fortress and ravaged the whole dis district, their numbers being daily swelled by a flow of reckless recruits from every side. Throughout the, the parts of Judea, moreover, the brigands hitherto dormant now began to bestir themselves, as, and as in a body, when the chief member is inflamed, all the others are infected. So when strife and disorder broke out in the capital, it gave the rebels in the country free license to plunder, and each gang, after plundering their own village, went off into the wilderness. Then, after joining forces and swearing mutual allegiance, they would organize themselves in companies smaller than an army, but bigger than a band of brigands, which then swooped down upon sanctuaries and cities. The unfortunate victims of their attacks suffered as severely as if they were captives of war, and were unable to retaliate because the raiders, like brigands, had encamped with their prey. In fact, every portion of Judea was going the way of the ruined metropolis. Here's another section that shows how Israel had uh, turned into a beast. This is another one of the divisions, remember, three divisions of, of Israel, three rebel forces that uh, ended up devouring one another. In uh, book number four, uh, chapter nine, uh, section eight, Having at this unexpected way marched into Idumea without bloodshed, Simon captured the little town of Hebron by a surprise attack, where he seized a large quantity of booty and laid hands on the huge supplies of grain. According to the statements of the inhabitants, Hebron is more ancient than any town in the country, even older than Memphis in Egypt. It is reckoned at least 2,300 years old. They further related that it was the home of Abraham, the forefather of the Jews, after his migration from Mesopotamia, and that his descendants went down into Egypt from there. Their tombs are shown in this town to this day, 
made of the finest marble and beautifully fashioned. At a distance of six furlongs from the town there grows an immense terebinth, said to have stood there since creation. From Hebron, Simon advanced through the whole of Idumea, not only sacking villages and towns, but also ravaging the countryside, since provisions proved insufficient for such a host. For in addition to his troops, he had 40,000 followers. Moreover, his brutal nature and hatred of the people were major reasons for the devastation of their land. Just as in the wake of Locust, a whole forest may be seen stripped bare, so in the rear of Simon's army nothing was left but desolation. Some places they burned, some they razed to the ground. All vegetation vanished throughout the country, either trodden underfoot or devoured, and by marching across they made cultivated land harder than barren soil. In short, not a trace remained to show that they destroyed that what they destroyed had ever existed. You remember the locust in the book of Revelation? Well, <laughs> those locusts might be human beings. Okay, back to the story here. All this roused the zealots to renewed activity. Though afraid to meet Simon in open battle, they laid ambush in the passes and captured his wife and many of his servants. Then, as delighted as if they had taken Simon himself prisoner, they returned to the city, expecting that he would at once lay down his arms and plead for the return of his wife. Her capture, however, moved him not to tender feelings, but to fury. He advanced to the walls of Jerusalem, and like a wounded beast, when it failed to catch its hunter, he vented his anger upon everyone he met. All who went outside the gates to gather herbs or firewood, unarmed and aged individuals, he seized and tortured to death. In his boundless rage, he was ready to gnaw their dead bodies. He sent many of them back after cutting off their hands, and with the twofold object of intimidating his host and stirring the people to revolt against the responsible parties. They were ordered to say that Simon swore to God, who oversees all, that if they did not instantly restore his wife to him, he would demolish the wall and inflict similar punishment on every soul in the city, sparing neither young nor old, and treating guilty and innocent alike. These threats terrified not only the citizens, but the zealots too, and they sent his wife back to him, pacified for the time being. He took a respite from ceaseless bloodshed. Here it also shows that uh, this war went beyond um, Israel. It says here in section 9, it was not only in Judea that sedition and civil war were rife, but in Italy too. Galba had been assassinated in the middle of the Roman Forum, and his successor, Otho, being proclaimed emperor, was at war with Vitellius, who claimed the throne declaring that he had been nominated by the legions in Germany. In the battle fought at Bedriacum in Gaul, battle was joined against Valens and K. Cinna, Vitellius generals. On the first day, Otho had the advantage. On the second, the troops of Vitellius. So frightened was the carnage that Otho killed himself in Brixellum, where he learned of his defeat after a reign of only three months and two days. His army went over to Vitellius' generals, who now marched upon Rome himself with his entire force.
Now, a little tidbit for you uh, dealing with the book of Revelation. You know, a lot of people have a real mystery and misunderstanding as to who the ten horns are. They're the ten European economic communities, and they're the you know, ten nations of uh, Arabs of some sort, uh, ultimately, and all kinds of things. But a lot of people don't realize that there were ten districts of Palestine at that period of time, and Jerusalem was the head of those uh, ten districts. And, you know, we, we, we mentioned earlier that Jerusalem itself started the fire against its own temple. In Revelation 17, verse 16, we, we find here, And the ten horns which you saw on the beast, these will hate the harlot, make her desolate and naked, eat her flesh, and burn her with fire. For God has put it in their hearts to fulfill his purpose, to be of one mind, and to give the kingdom to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman whom you saw is the great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. So, um, you know, I want to point out a couple of scriptures here to show that it was, in fact, the Jews who set the uh, fire to the temple first, not the Romans. In uh, book number 6, uh, chapter 2, section 9, we read, The Jews suffered so severely in the engagements as the war slowly but steadily rose to climax and crept closer to the sanctuary, they, they decided to sever, as from a gangrenous body, the affected limbs so as to prevent the spread of disease. They set on fire the portion of the portico facing northwest, which was connected with the Antonia, and then hacked away about 20 cubits, thus initiating the fire of their holy places with their own hands. Later on, the Romans finished it off, and we uh, see that in uh, book number 6, um, section, chapter 4, verses, uh, or piece number 5, section number 5. And here's how the account goes. Titus retired to the Antonia, intending to launch a full-scale attack the following day at dawn and taking possession of the temple. The sanctuary, however, had long been before been condemned by God to the flames, and now after the passing of the years, the fated day was at hand, the tenth of the month of Lewis, the very date when centuries before it had been burned by the king of Babylon. But now it was their own people who had caused and started the conflagration. For when Titus had withdrawn, the rebels shortly after attacked the Romans again, and a clash followed between the guards of the sanctuary and the troops who were putting out the fire inside the inner court. The latter routed the Jews and followed in hot pursuit right up to the temple itself. Then one of the soldiers, without waiting any orders and without, with no dread of so momentous a deed, but urged on by some supernatural force, snatched a blazing piece of wood and climbing on another soldier's back, hurled the flaming brand through a low golden window that gave access on the north side to the rooms that surrounded the sanctuary. As the flames shot up, the Jews let out a shout of dismay that matched the tragedy. They flocked to the rescue with no thought of sparing their lives or husbanding their strength. For the sacred structure that, that, that they had constantly guarded with such devotion was vanishing before their very eyes. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are in the midst of her depart. 
and let not those who are in the country enter her. For these days are the days of vengeance, that all things which are written may be fulfilled. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babes in those days. For there will be great distress in the land and great wrath upon this people. And they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led away into captive into all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And there will be signs in the sun, in the moon, and in the stars, and on the earth, distress of nations, with perplexity, the sea, and the waves roaring, men's heart failing them from fear, and the expectation of those things which are coming on the earth, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to happen, look up and lift up your heads, because your redemption draws nigh. Book 6, Chapter 3, Section 3 Meanwhile, countless numbers fell victims to the famine in the city. The sufferings they endured were unspeakable. In every home, the very shadow of food led to conflict, and the closest relatives came to blows, snatching from each other even pitiful means of subsistence. Not even the dying were believed to be in want of food, and even those expiring were searching, searched by the brigands in case any of them had food hidden inside their clothing and were feigning death. These desperate ruffians stumbled and staggered along like mad dogs, open-mouthed with hunger, battering at the doors like drunken men, and in their helpless confusion bursting into the same house two or three times in a single hour. Necessity drove them to gnaw everything, and objects that not even the filthiest dumb animals would look at to pick up and eat. In the end, they did not stop at eating belts and shoes. They stripped off the leather from their shields and gnawed at it. Some tried to live on scraps of old hay, and there were people who collected stacks and sold a tiny bunch for four attic drachmas. But why should I go on to describe the inanimate things that hunger made them unashamed to enough to eat, as I now describe an act of, of which there is no parallel in the annals of Greece or any other country, a horror and unspeakable deed, and one incredible to hear. Now, you know, all these things that they're reading, you, you know the Jews kept kosher. They, uh, they despised Gentiles for the things that they ate, and there were many uh, dietary laws that were far more stringent than Moses ever put upon people in terms of what they could eat and how they could eat. And here they ate anything and everything. In section 4 we read, There was a woman, Mary, the daughter of Eliezer, who lived east of the Jordan in the village of Bethusba, meaning house of Hyssop, distinguished in family and fortune, who had fled with the rest of the people to Jerusalem, where she became engulfed in the siege. Most of her property, which he had packed up and brought with her from Perea to the city, had been plundered by the tyrants. The remnants of her treasures and any food she had managed to procure were being stolen day after day by their henchmen. 
Full of indignation, the wretched woman kept on abusing and cursing the extortioners and thus roused their anger. But no one, either out of resentment or pity, put her to death as she wished, weary of providing food for others, which it was impossible to find anywhere. And while hunger ravaged their internal organs and marrow and rage consumed her still further, she finally yielded to the promptings of fury and necessity and defied nature itself. Seizing her child, a babe at the breast, she cried, Poor baby, why should I keep you alive midst fear, famine, and civil strife? We will only face slavery with the Romans, even if we survive until they arrive. But famine will forestall slavery, and the rebels are more cruel than either. Come, be my food, an avenging omen for the partisans, and to the world the only tale is yet untold of Jewish misery. So saying, she killed her son, roasted him, and ate one half, concealing and saving the rest. The partisans appeared at once, attracted by the unholy odor, and threatened that unless she produced what she had prepared, she would be killed on the spot. She retorted that she had saved as fine a helping for them and disclosed the remnants of her child. Overcome with instant horror and stupefaction, they stood immobile at the sight. She said, This child is mine, and so is this deed. Come, eat. I too have done so. Don't be softer than a woman or more tender-hearted than a mother. But if you are pious and do not approve of my sacrifice, then I have eaten in your behalf and let me keep the rest. At that they left trembling, cowards for once, though with some reluctance they left even this food to the mother. The whole city immediately talked of this abomination. Everyone saw this tragedy before his eyes and shuddered as if the crime were his own. The starving people desired to die. They envied those who had gone before and had neither seen nor heard of these horrors. We're still in Josephus, and uh, we're coming now to the end of this thing. We may go back into the war a little bit uh, later on in the tape right now. Here's an account of the end of the people of Israel. God's chosen people for 1,500 years. God was with them. God gave them the promises. God gave them blessings. God gave them the land. God gave them a covenant. God gave them a priesthood. And he set them into the Mediterranean basin as a priesthood unto the Gentiles, a heaven, a rulership, stars in the heavens, if you can hear it. And in uh, book number 6, chapter 9, section 2, we read, Because the soldiers were now growing weary of bloodshed, and survivors appeared constantly. Caesars gave orders to kill only those who offered armed resistance and to take alive all the rest. The troops, in addition to those covered by their orders, slaughtered the aged and infirm. People in their prime who might be useful, they herded into the temple area and shut up in the court of women. Caesar appointed one of his freedmen as their guards, and his friend, Pronto to 
decide the fates appropriate to each one. All those who had taken part in the sedition and brigandage they, inf they informed against each other, he executed. He picked out the tallest and most handsome of the lot and reserved them for the triumph. Of the rest, those who were over seventeen he put in chains and sent to hard labor in Egypt, while great numbers were presented by Titus to the provinces to perish in the theaters by sword or by wild beasts. Those under seventeen were sold. During the days in which Pronto was sorting them out, 11,000 of the prisoners perished from starvation, some because they did not receive any food because of the hatred of their guards, others because they would not accept it when offered. More to fill so many mouths was not, there was not enough wheat. In section 3 we read, all the prisoners taken captive throughout the entire war totaled 97,000. Those who perished during the long siege from its earliest stages to the end were 1,100,000. Of those, the largest number consisted of Jews by race, but not the natives of Jerusalem. They had assembled from the whole country for the Feast of Unleavened Bread and had suddenly, suddenly been caught up in the war. Consequently, the overcrowding caused death first by pestilence and later also more quickly by hunger. That so many could be crowded into the city was illustrated by the census taken by Cestius. Accordingly, on the occasion of the Feast of the Passover, at which they sacrificed between the ninth and the eleventh hour, and as groups of not fewer than ten persons formed around each sacrifice, for it is forbidden to feast alone, while many groups included as many as twenty, the count of the sacrifices showed that there were 255,600. Allowing an average of 10 dinners to each sacrifice, this totaled 2,700,000, all ceremonially pure. For those afflicted with leprosy or gonorrhea, those women who were menstruating or persons otherwise defiled were debarred from partaking in the sacrifices, as were many foreigners present for worship and a large number of these assembled from abroad. In Book 7, Chapter 1, Section 1, we read, There were no more victims for the army to kill or plunder, and no soul on which to vent their rage, for mercy would never have made them keep their hands off anyone as long as there was work to be done. Caesar consequently ordered them to raise the whole city and the temples, leaving only the loftiest of the towers, Phasel, Hippicus, and Maramain, and the stretch of wall enclosing the city on the west, the last mentioned to serve a camp for the garrison that was to remain, and the towers in order to show later generations the might of the city that had been conquered by Roman powers. All the rest of the wall encircling the city was so completely leveled to the ground that no future visitors would believe that it had ever been inhabited. This, then, was the end to which the mad folly of revolutionaries brought Jerusalem, that magnificent city renowned throughout the world. That reminds us of uh, Jesus' words in Matthew 24, 
Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. And he said to them, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming? The end of the age. Paul wrote to the Corinthians in the 10th chapter, 11th verse, Now all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. All the Old Testament was written for Paul's generation, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. What ends of what ages? All the ends of all the ages to the nation, to the heavens, to the earth of physical Israel. And we living 1900 years later haven't learned a damn thing from the examples of the prophets and the writers of the Old Testament or the apostles writing from 30 A.D. to 70 A.D. in the New Testament. Now perhaps scriptures like this in 1 Corinthians 7.29 might begin to make some more sense to us 1,900 years down the road. Paul, writing to the Corinthians, before the destruction of Jerusalem, said, But this I say, brethren, the time is short, so that from now on even those who have wives should be as though they had none, those who weep as though they did not weep, those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice those who buy as though they did not possess, and those who use this world as not misusing it, for the form of this world is passing away. Scriptures such as 1 John 2.17 begin to make true sense in the light of what we just read. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. Little children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come, from which we know that, is, that it is the last hour. I believe this was written before Nehru Caesar came into power. And if anyone studies Nehru life, he was a madman of madmen. His name in the Aramaic was Neron Ciceron or something like that. I bet you can't imagine what his name in the uh, numeric value of its language is. Obviously, it was number six, six, six. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the clouds, Thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time has come for you to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who sat on the clouds thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, 
he also having a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar who had power over fire. And he cried with a loud cry to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in your sickle and gather in the clusters of the vines of the earth, for her grapes are ripe. So the angel thrust her sickle, his sickle into the earth and gathered the vines of the earth and threw it into the winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trampled outside the city, and blood came out of the winepress up to the horse's bridle for 1,600 furlongs. The length, by the way, roughly of the river Jordan. The prophet Joel had this to say about the time, and it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And on your men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Book number 5, chapter 1, section 2 through 5. Eliezer, son of Simon, who had originally caused the break between the zealots and the people and removed them into the sacred precincts, now professed indignation at the outrages daily committed by John, who continued his murderous career unabated, but in reality because he could not bear to submit to a tyrant junior to himself and his set in his heart on absolute power and the despotic rule of his own. He succeeded from the party, taking with him Judas, son of Chalcias, and Simon, son of Ezron, both influential people, together with a man of distinction, Ezekias, son of Chochbari. Since each of these had a considerable following of zealots, the succeeders seized the inner court of the temple and planted their weapons above the holy gates leading to the sacred facade. They were amply supplied with provisions and had no fears on their ground. There was an unlimited supply of consecrated articles for those who deemed nothing impious, but they were alarmed by the smallness of their numbers, and for the most part sat still and held their ground. John, on the other hand, had the advantage of numbers, but this was counterbalanced by his inferior position. With his enemies overhead, he could neither attack them with impunity, nor would his rage allow him to remain inactive. Though he suffered more injury than he could inflict on Eliezer and his men, he still would not give up. Thus there were constant sallies and showers of missiles, and the temple was defiled with carnage at every corner. Then there was Simon, the son of Gioras, yet another tyrant whom the people in their distress called in, hoping for relief 